It's really wonderful to just be a part of a church where the fellowship can be so hearty and uh, you guys actually enjoy each other. So that <laughs> that's neat. I do want to also thank you for the various people who have encouraged me, texted me, and certainly the ones who have been praying for me uh, for this. And uh, just thank you for the elders, uh, the, the trust that you've placed in me. And I, I am thankful to the Lord for what He's taught me during this time of study. Uh, for those of you that didn't know, I, months ago in the Wednesday night time where we were studying prayers, I did this prayer of Habakkuk. And uh, it was just a real growth experience for me to have studied it last year and then coming back to it with the idea of preparing for a Sunday service and realizing how little I knew about what was here. And uh, part of that is just the growth that comes from seeing the elders preaching the chapters prior to this and knowing the Lord continues to reveal his deeper and deeper truths. Uh, it's just, it's astonishing. It's astonishing how much is in the, a little three-chapter book crammed into the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And yet, the fullness of God is uh, without depth. Anyhow, beginning. Uh, have you ever thought today would be a good day to have my faith tested? I suppose it's possible to want to be stretched. I think many of the people who go to evangelism in Old Town or WSU expect to be tested. Certainly, the missionaries we support are being tested every day. But I am thinking of a test of faith that genuinely reveals where your hope is placed. The test of faith that carries the weight of eternity. I ask this because in our passage today... Habakkuk demonstrates the mature faith that knows who God is and what God has done in the past. And more importantly, the faith that can trust God for the future. This chapter is an example of the righteous living by his faith. If our faith is tested, will we be prepared? Will we need to be ready to step forward and to not shrink back. We need to be like the believers described in Hebrews 10.32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Both Hebrews and Habakkuk are describing a faith that lets us joyfully accept the plundering of our property. 
and rejoice when there be no herd in the stalls. A real deal faith that can only be the result of the Holy Spirit. A faith that is mixed with no strength of my own. Because like Habakkuk 3.19 says, God the Lord is my strength. Let's look at the final chapter in the book of Habakkuk. The vast majority of these verses are a recital of what God has done for the people of Israel. Why is this? Remember how he reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 3.14? There he, re- he says to Moses, I am who I am. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is important because he is telling the Israelites that he is the God that did those things. The history is important because it is a record of how God acted in justice and mercy and righteousness then and how he will act according to that same unchanging nature for Habakkuk and still unchanging how God will act today for us. We're not asked to have blind faith in the unknown for this book contains the record of his works over thousands of years. And we can say with Paul in 2 Timothy 1.12, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In other words, we do not blindly trust in some higher power hoping for a good outcome. We have faith in a God that we know because He has told us about what He has done. Thus far in our study of this book, we have seen God answer Habakkuk's complaint and we have seen Habakkuk wonder how God can bring this wicked nation against the chosen people. And we have seen that while the righteous shall live by his faith, the soul of the one who is puffed up or full of pride is walking the wide road that leads to destruction. Now, we will look at how living by faith allows us to rejoice when we have nothing except God. Because God, the Lord, is my strength. Habakkuk, the man, begins this book with a concern for the injustice around him and is progressively having his eyes lifted higher and higher until he sees the eternal purpose of God. Most of us have probably had similar thoughts. Why, God, do you allow such things to be said and done in this world where your children live? Why do you look on suffering and do not act? Frankly, we sometimes come across as if the sin that surrounds us is more offensive to us than it is to God because we surely would have dealt with it by now. How arrogant we are. How do we explain the existence of evil? Well, there is such a basic simplicity in the explanation given here of why the wicked prosper and the righteous are swallowed up. It's so basic that we might overlook it. Rather than leave that heavy philosophical question as a puzzle for men to debate over, 
God does answer Habakkuk and even says in 2 verse 3, make it plain on tablets. And the answer is what Brad taught us and what Kent repeated last week and where I start today. The righteous shall live by his faith. That's it. All of the why questions from Habakkuk and from us are answered by looking to God in faith. Brothers and sisters, think with me for a moment about the object of our faith, God Almighty. And the source of our faith, again, God Almighty, the Eternal Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We must have a right understanding about both the object and source of our faith if that faith is to give us comfort when the world around us collapses in chaos. In this small book, we see Habakkuk grow in his understanding of God and grow in his faith. Many in the church get this wrong and it can be crippling. We can fall into deep despair if we look around this world as if the cosmic battle between good and evil is one of equals. Even if we were to imagine the forces of God against Satan are dramatically out of balance so that there is a very lopsided struggle for dominance. We would be right to despair because the end result could still be uncertain. This is not the case. God is not wondering where Satan will attack next and moving the chess pieces of history to blunt the charge. God is not a player in history along with the rest of the characters, all of whom are being carried along through time. God is the author who is writing the script without any uncertainty at all of the outcome or where the next challenge will rise up. It is His story from beginning to end. No mistakes, no corrections. Christ is not a second best option when the first Adam muffed it. It's here in Habakkuk where I see God revealing this aspect of Himself most clearly. He shows us that what we see as the ebb and flow of battles and armies and empires is actually the story He has written from eternity past. The kingdom is lost for the want of a nail only when God writes it that way. During our time in Habakkuk, I hope you've been able to stand in awe of our God who directs history and does it according to His purpose for His glory. I really like how the Westminster Larger Catechism describes God's work in history. Question 18 of that catechism, what are God's works of providence? And the answer is God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. We see His sovereign providence in mind-jarring clarity throughout this book. In Habakkuk, God draws the curtain of His purpose back just enough to show us that history is really about God and His glory above all. Or in the classic words from chapter 1, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days 
that you would not believe even if told. Knowing the works of God in history helps us trust Him for our future. But there is another facet of faith from this chapter. We are to have faith in a God who demonstrates mercy and wrath. This is easy to talk about sitting in a comfortable building having very little concern about how we will find enough food to survive. And honestly, it can seem very remote, very much like it is just a description of what has happened. Like watching a great player on a television screen. Wow, Habakkuk can really pray. That was amazing. Looking at chapter 3 and verse 1, there is a surprising phrase. A prayer of the of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. So far, the oracle of Habakkuk has been part a discussion between the prophet and God and part a history lesson of what the Chaldeans were like and what they were going to do. Now, we have a prayer that is according to Shigianoth. The strange word Shigianoth is unclear to us today. It's used in Psalm 7 where the description of the psalm reads, A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. The meanings suggested by scholars include a musical term, a liturgical term, a type of psalm, or even a lament. But for our purpose today, I want to focus simply on the presence of the word. It indicates that what follows is written for others to read. It's written for us to read. It's not simply a spirit-inspired record, spirit-inspired record of what Habakkuk prayed in the quietness of his heart. Skip now to the end of the chapter, down kind of after the text of verse 19. Seems like a note. It reads, To the choir master with stringed instruments. This was intended to be sung or recited by the people of Judah, much like the Psalms were. And like the Psalms, this prayer is to teach us eternal truth about God and move us to glorify Him. With the idea in mind that this would be recited or sung corporately in some form, let's consider all that has occurred in this small book. The nation is corrupt and justice is perverted. There is violence and the wicked prosper. And of course, God has just described the Babylonian invasion which will result in the destruction of Jerusalem and of Solomon's temple and the death of all but a remnant of God's people. Those who first recited these words are living in the context of the loss of everything they have known. Their foundations have literally been torn away and their own existence is as a small remnant of what was once a nation of God's covenant people. These are the words God gives them. He has brought the wrath in the form of the Chaldeans and these are the people who also know His mercy. This prayer slash psalm begins with Habakkuk hearing and fearing. O Lord, I have heard the report of you 
and your work, O Lord, do I fear. I wonder, have we grown so accustomed to reading the works of God contained in these pages that we can decorate nurseries with Noah's Ark and never even think about the wrath of God demonstrated in the waters around that little boat? Do we think about Habakkuk and his contemporaries who would face this enemy who sweeps across the land and gathers captives like sand? We can read Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Lamentations to get a glimpse of the unimaginable destruction and horrible cruelty that came with this invasion, the invasion described here. It is truly the wrath of God poured out. Yet we are to read or sing this prayer as a psalm. We are to hear the report and say like Habakkuk, your work, Lord, do I, oh Lord, do I fear. And I believe we're supposed to see God more completely as we remember his works. He is a God of wrath and that wrath is being stored up. And he is a God of mercy because the remnant was able to read these words and sing along with the choir master. Even if Habakkuk only grasped a portion of what was coming, it was dreadful. In the midst of years, revive it, make it known. Even though the Lord brings the wrath, it is also true that only the hand of the Lord can deliver us. Reviving it, according to this, is like asking God to deliver like he did during the Exodus. Specifically, we call upon the character of God to remember mercy because we know we actually deserve the wrath. Mercy is not receiving the wrath due our sins. As we as individuals and nations must recognize that mercy has been extended continually from the very first moments of our rebellion against God. We know that because we're still here. Matthew Henry sees the idea of reviving mercy in the midst of years as shortening the years of wrath for the sake of the elect. This is the type of divine reprieve that we see in the book of Ezra that occurred during the actual expulsion from the land that Habakkuk is prophesying. These exiles went to Babylon they returned with Ezra. And that small portion of exiles that have returned are rebuilding the temple. And it looks hopeful. But by Ezra chapter 9, we see intermarriage with the pagans and idol worship beginning again. Ezra tears his garments and pleads with the Lord for mercy. And describes their divine reprieve in Ezra 9 verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. The idea of God reviving mercy in the midst of years is also described by Jesus in Mark 13.20 when discussing what is to come. And if the Lord had not cut short the, the days, 
no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened the days. It's a plea for God's mercy. What comes next in this psalm slash prayer is a poetic summary of the Lord's work to establish his covenant people during the exodus and after. The overall picture is of a mighty protector and a God who exhibits irresistible power over the heavens and the earth. This is not just the God of Habakkuk. These words describe the wrath and mercy of the one true God. He is who he is. This is the God we also worship. As I read the verses, I know that Nathan read them, but I want to read them again so that we can think about having faith in and fellowship with such a God as this. This is a poetic description, kind of summarizing what happens between Exodus and all the way up through probably a a little bit of Joshua. But this is also our God being described. Try to listen and follow along with the visions and the images that these poetical lines bring to mind. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah, think about that. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This is the great I am, the God who grants us faith to believe in His one and only Son who died to give us life and saves us from the wrath that we deserve. In wrath, He remembered mercy. In verse 16, Habakkuk is overwhelmed by the scene. And we can fully understand this. It is overwhelming. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. 
My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. It reminds me of Isaiah 6 where the prophet is undone upon seeing the vision of God's holiness in the temple. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The power of the Almighty is fearful, a fearful thing to man. Yet Habakkuk now says he will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So different from chapter 1. Remember what he was like back then? Gone is the complaint. Gone is the why. Gone is the how long, O Lord. It has been replaced, and I might say refined, into a quiet trusting and faith. He believes the Lord will do what he announced in chapter 2 and destroy this enemy in his own time. He now has a faith that can say, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is now experiencing what the Lord told him in chapter 2. In 2 verse 4, we read, The righteous shall live by his faith. This is a phrase that's easily corrupted or distorted by those who would take lightly the wrath of God and would presume upon the mercy that God has thus far extended. When Habakkuk says the fields yield no food and the stalls are empty, he's describing rock bottom. When the Babylonians invaded, the whole society was dismantled. It wasn't just no food, it was no farmers. Vineyards were destroyed and olive trees were cut down. And it was worse than a tornado because these things were done by an army of enemies that God himself had brought into the nation. The army that was bringing shame and slavery and death. The captives were herded 500 miles away to Babylon, while the few who escaped and were left alone were in a ruined land. Pain, grief, humiliation, and the knowledge that God Himself is against you must have been unbearable. Where does your heart go when everything looks hopeless? Where do we turn when there is nowhere to turn? If this happens to us, will we despair? Will we lose heart because we are certain this is the wrath of God upon our nation? And then will we hesitate to lift our eyes to Him? We will surely be crushed under the weight of His holy justice unless we know that He has provided the payment for our sin. Through Christ, we are forgiven and redeemed from wrath if we believe. 
but the righteous shall live by his faith. We know that even now, our own nation has forsaken the word of the Lord. And we actually genuinely deserve wrath. Maybe it's already begun, or maybe the Lord will glorify himself by a national repentance. However, we can be certain of how we ought to respond. Habakkuk's psalm prayer here has us saying at the end, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. When the righteous live by faith, it is the life that understands God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is the God of my salvation. That certainly is cause for joy and rejoicing even when there is nothing. Because when there is nothing, we actually have nothing except heaven and eternity with the triune God. And that is more than everything. Compare the change in Habakkuk from verse, chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help and you will not hear? With the end of chapter 3, where he prays that though there, though there be no food... Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's no longer trying to hold God accountable for withholding the punishment of the wicked. This is the very heart of the gospel. When we live by faith, we not only trust the word of the living Lord, but we trust his ways. His timing is perfect. Even his timing dealing with the evil in the world around us. Look at Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When the righteous lives by faith we understand that God's divine forbearance gave us time to believe in Christ Jesus. In wrath, he remembered mercy. And we can know that even when the stalls are empty, we can take joy in the God of our salvation. Verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God, the Lord, is my strength. When the Lord is your strength, how strong do you have to be? My mother-in-law has a print of an old man in a boat holding on to a large oar. And beside him is a small girl whose hands are also on the oar and her face is determined and slightly fearful. She's obviously feeling the responsibility to row the boat. 
But all the actual work and the weight of the responsibility belongs to the old man. That is a representation of God the Father working through us. God the Lord is my strength. It takes faith to rely on something or someone else when your life is at stake. We like redundancy and safety harnesses and airbags and we worry that a wing will fall off the airplane because we know that we are frail. But why do little children love to be tossed high by their daddy? They love the thrill because they fully trust dad to catch them. Kids are not worried about crashing because they know their father and surrender completely to his strong arms. They're just there to enjoy the ride. When the God of our salvation is our joy and he is our strength, then we can go without fear to the places that he is calling us to walk. We can be like the deer upon the crags, jumping around without a care, we can stand. This closing verse is a picture of a creature that walks in places that we would fear to tread. It's an image that makes us think about how that deer can move from rock to rock and not be paralyzed by anxiety. Whether on the rocky hills of Judah or the plains of Kansas, the deer move gracefully and with a sure-footed ability that is beautiful to watch. He, God, makes my feet like the feet of a deer's. In this passage, the image is of a faithful believer. The picture is one of faith that is not anxious about a foot slipping or a rock breaking loose. Notice, it is God who has made my feet like the feet of a deer's. This is the result of God working faith in the believer's life. It's what we see when we look how a faithful saint, a faithful saint can move fearlessly onward as the ground all around seems to fall away and there is no visible support. Whether they be the martyrs of the past or martyrs of the present or missionaries in closed countries or the faithful that rejoice in the Lord right here, they share one common refrain when they declare, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. I pray that God may grant us that same faith. The faith to stand and the faith to rejoice in Him. Amen.